You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As the nationwide protests in the wake of George Floyd's death bring attention to police misconduct, a legal doctrine that was rarely discussed before has come under attack from all directions. Qualified immunity is a doctrine developed by the Supreme Court that protects police from civil lawsuits alleging violations of constitutional rights. At Wednesday's House Judiciary Committee hearing, civil rights lawyer and Floyd family attorney Benjamin Crump testified that qualified immunity leads to no accountability for police. The courts have interpreted this qualified immunity to almost give complete impunity to the police officers. That's why nobody is ever held accountable. Opposition to the doctrine is so widespread that more than 1,400 professional athletes, coaches, and executives, including Tom Brady, Odell Beckham Jr., and Greg Popovich, signed a letter asking Congress to pass legislation to eliminate qualified immunity for law enforcement and other public officials. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, explain what qualified immunity is. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine created by the court that basically holds that law enforcement and state officials have immunity, which means they can't be sued for their discretionary actions, frequently actions taken by police officers in effecting an arrest, unless their actions violated clearly established constitutional law or other rights and, in effect, that the officers acted outrageously. And it's been used to basically defeat civil cases. It's not a defense in the criminal aspects. So if officers are charged, as the um, officers in Minneapolis are, with criminal violations of law, qualified immunity has no application. But it has been used frequently to make it very difficult to sue local officials for violating constitutional rights. So under qualified immunity, plaintiffs have to show that officers violated clearly established rights. But has that hurdle become so high that courts are requiring prior court rulings with almost identical facts? Exactly. And this doctrine is, by the way, clearly on its way out. There's a bill pending in Congress. And as well, the Supreme Court has nine, count them, nine separate cases pending cert review at the Supreme Court. The doctrine seems to be on its way out, but it's been criticized because basically the way the law has now evolved. This clearly established law means there needs to be a court decision pretty much on what we lawyers call on point, meaning completely applicable under the facts, so that if someone is accused of violating a constitutional right, but no court has ever said that specific behavior violates the Constitution, then the officer would have a qualified immunity and the court on a motion for summary judgment can dismiss the lawsuit. That's been criticized as being ridiculous. Probably the best example of that is there's a Miss Alabama case involving a practice in the prison to punish or discipline the prisoners. They would lock them up literally to a hitching post out in the yard. Seems to be cruel and unusual for most people. They sued saying that this form of punishment Locking them up in the yard during the, the heat of the summer day was cruel and unusual and violated their constitutional rights. And the court said, no, well, actually, there's no court case saying that exactly. So the case was dismissed. So it's been taken to an absurd reach. The doctrine was created by the Supreme Court in the 60s. Tell us about that case. The case evolved out of the civil rights cases. In 1967, in a case called Pearson versus Ray, court allowed a police officer who arrested a group of ministers who wanted to go into the segregated waiting room in a bus station. And the court said there, look, 
the law in this case was unconstitutional. We later held that. But at the time, the police officers could not possibly have known this. So we are giving them this qualified immunity. It's been applied a number of times. There was a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald where the court basically changed the standard. That's when it created this new standard, which is that in order to lose the qualified immunity, the law had to have been clearly established by prevailing law, which basically means some of the court decisions. Two justices on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, Justices Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor, have written about concerns with the doctrine for different reasons. Which is why that it's clear that the doctrine no longer enjoys really probably anyone on the Supreme Court who would want to uphold it. Because on the right, the strict constructionists led by Justice not only Roberts and Thomas and I assume Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, believe that any tinkering of a law, modification by a court of a federal statute is impermissible and improper. And of course, Justice Sotomayor and probably Kagan don't believe that it's right to insulate local officials from civil rights cases. So clearly the votes are against the doctrine. Congressman Justin Amash has introduced a bill to end qualified immunity. Does Congress have the authority to override what the Supreme Court has ruled as law? A great question. It depends upon the Supreme Court's the basis for their decision. In this case, qualified immunity, absolutely Congress can override it. And the reason for that is the court decision, going back to Pearson versus Ray and other decisions, have been based upon an interpretation of a congressional statute. So when the Supreme Court says we interpret federal law to say A, B, and C, Congress is absolutely entitled to disagree with them and overrule the Supreme Court by passing a law that repudiates that particular distinction. In this case, Congress is well within its rights to eliminate qualified immunity from federal law. They can say, that wasn't our intent. Remember, the law that was being amended is basically civil rights statute, which is called Section 1983, which basically reads that every person under color of law who violates the rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution shall be liable to the person who's injured. The statute does not apply for any express or implicit defenses. So when the court read into this decision, this limitation, this defense, Congress absolutely has the power to disagree by amending the statute. Those who support qualified immunity say that if you get rid of it, it'll lead to nuisance lawsuits against police and others. Do you think that's true? There are several arguments against it. And there's no question that we need police officers. And we need police officers to have the courage and the fortitude to go out and do a dangerous job, which is arrest people who are breaking the law. And the notion of qualified immunity is we want those officers to know, if you will, that we have their backs when they're acting responsibly and that people aren't going to second guess them. Because something called the Ferguson effect is what we saw with one of these last outrageous abuses of police discretion. And that is if police officers don't feel that they're protected, there's a concern that they will not go into the communities where there's lawbreaking occurring and that they will sit in their patrol cars and the public will not be protected. So the notion that we want to deter people from bringing frivolous lawsuits, I think that doesn't have a lot of saliency, to be honest with you. But the more important argument is we do want to assure the police officers who are doing the right thing and acting responsibly in good faith that they are not going to be pulled out of their cars and hauled into civil courts and facing damages. Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse. Coming up next... ICE can no longer arrest undocumented immigrants in New York courthouses. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. 
An undocumented immigrant may walk into a New York courthouse to pay a traffic ticket and walk out in handcuffs with an ICE agent. Since the Trump executive order in 2017, federal immigration officers have been making more visits to New York courtrooms to arrest undocumented immigrants appearing there as victims, defendants, or witnesses. It's a practice so well known that it was the subject of the television show All Rise, where the judge objects to an ICE agent being in her courtroom to arrest an illegal immigrant. This is a safe place for us to do our job, our duty. It is my duty to make sure that you don't use these courts as a stock pond, because people need to believe that this is a just place. If citizens, citizens, people then. If people think they'll be deported, they won't show up. Witnesses will refuse to testify. Defendants will skip bail. Crimes will go unreported. But a federal judge has put a stop to that in New York. On Wednesday, Judge Jed Rakoff said the ICE practice was illegal, and he ordered ICE to stop arresting people on the grounds of any New York State courthouse or as they travel to a courthouse. Joining me is Leon Fresco, the former head of the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation and now a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, tell us about Judge Rakoff's ruling in this lawsuit brought by the New York Attorney General and the Brooklyn District Attorney. Well, Judge Rakoff's ruling, first of all, is a final ruling in the case. It's not a preliminary injunction. It's actually a summary judgment decision. It restricts ICE's ability to be able to go into courthouses to create what are called civil arrests of people who are trying to access the courthouses. And what had happened was, was there was a change from the time of the Obama administration, where the only people who were allowed to be picked up at courthouses were public safety, national security risks. And what the Trump administration was doing in a 2018 memo that said, basically, anybody could be picked up in a courthouse. And so the judge ruled that that new memo both violated the statute of how ICE is supposed to pick people up, and also is arbitrary and capricious because it creates a problem for the state that otherwise wouldn't be created by simply allowing people to access the courts and picking them up in some other location. And what was the separation of powers issue? That was part of why he said that the memo violated the statute itself, because what he said was there is an implicit recognition in all federal statutes that they have to maintain a respect for federalist principles. And so unless Congress had written a statute that specifically said, we authorize ICE to go into state courthouses to arrest people, the federal government has to accept federalist principles and states' rights. This is state court. So the undocumented immigrants are coming there for everything but immigration matters. Right. They're either there for traffic offenses or domestic violence issues or civil lawsuits or criminal issues, but not immigration. And the point is, in all of those issues, the interest of the state is you'd rather have the person come to court and address whatever the legal controversy is that that person is involved in than have them not come to court because they're afraid of being picked up by ICE. ICE can always get this person in some other way, but the only way this person can address their legal obligations is to go to court the subtext of all of this, why this is all happening, is ICE is upset in general that in New York State, they don't have sort of the easy ways of accessing people for removal. The main one being that you can go to the jails 
and literally transfer someone from a jail into ICE custody. And so for them, the courthouse is a very good one because at that point, you know they don't have any weapons on them. You know that they are there, what time they're going to be there. You know that they're there in a posture where they're not thinking about violence for the most part. And so that's what they want to try to accomplish. Leon, Judge Rakoff is the second federal judge to make this kind of a decision against ICE. Last year, a judge in Massachusetts made a similar decision and the government appealed it. Do you think Judge Rakoff's order will be appealed as well? Yes, I think this will be appealed, and I think this is yet another one of the cases that will eventually make its way up to the Supreme Court. But here, I think the Supreme Court will actually have some conundrum as to what they want to do because they generally want to be respectful of states' rights, but they also want to be respectful of the president's ability to implement the immigration laws. And so here is they have a kind of conundrum as to who they would side with. But I would hope that they would realize that there are literally an infinite number of ways ICE can pick people up for removal. Just eliminating this courthouse way wouldn't be such a huge imposition when it is balanced against the fact that people being deterred from going to court is just such a harm for the interests of the state in administering a justice system that that harm really does have to be considered. Why New York and Massachusetts? Do other states allow ICE to just transfer immigrants from a state or city prison to federal custody? Right. What happens is this courthouse procedure is only put in place in cities and states where ICE doesn't have the jail route as a way to pick people up. And so you're not going to see a lot of places that file these kind of lawsuits. You know, you might end up seeing it in California one day, but the point is you're not going to see too many places because a lot of places don't fit the criteria of ICE actually saying the only way that we can easily find people is in the courthouse. One of the bigger problems with New York, not so much Massachusetts, but with New York, is because it's so densely populated, a lot of these removal actions, you'd have to go into big apartment buildings, you know, and you have to create a massive level of disruption. And that's what ICE doesn't want to do. Whereas kind of places that are more scattered out and easier to have these enforcement operations, then you don't need to go as much into courthouses. We haven't heard much about immigration matters during the pandemic. What's been happening? You know, have, has ICE slowed down? Has uh, the Trump administration slowed down in what they're doing? Well, it all depends what you want to look at. So if you want to look at the numbers of detentions and the number of removals, those have decreased during the COVID pandemic because the facilities have basically had to be cut in half in terms of capacity to meet social distancing requirements with regard to COVID. And removals have been down because a lot of countries aren't accepting flights right now into their countries to permit removal. So you have removals basically only occurring to Mexico and to just beginning again into Central America. And that's about it on the removal front. But at the same time, there are many proclamations and regulations that have been issued. So where, as, as of right now, you have a situation where, first of all, nobody anywhere in the world, and I'm talking about literally any country, can go into a U.S. consulate right now and get a visa to visit the United States. All of our consulates are closed and have been closed for the last four months, and it's not clear 
when even one consulate and even you know like for instance new zealand doesn't have coronavirus in new zealand anymore and yet the consulate is closed and so the question is why is that and when are some of these consulates going to reopen again so that's the first thing that's happened second of all we have travel bans in almost half the world now when you consider europe china and now some parts of you know south america including brazil you start to see that you can't even travel from most places to the United States and the Canadian border is closed and the Mexican border is closed. And so you have that. And then in addition to that, now you have new rules that have prevented employment-based green cards from being granted in most categories to people who are outside the United States. And there's about to be new restrictions put in place for even non-immigrant work visa programs. These are the short-term work programs that allow people to fill needs that they can't find in the United States. Plus, just yesterday, there was a 161-page rule that was issued on asylum that makes it almost impossible to obtain asylum in the United States because if you cross through any other country before arriving in the United States, that's going to be held against you in order to get asylum. And so that would basically mean you'd have to take a direct flight into the United States in order to obtain asylum. That is now going in for notice and comment and is set to go into effect after the notice and comment period is over. So then it seems that President Trump did keep his promise in the area of immigration, of of cutting down on immigration. Right. At the moment, it is virtually impossible for any human being from a foreign country to enter the United States when you add up the amalgamation of all of the different bans and closures that have occurred in the system. It is basically impossible to enter the United States. And the question is, yes, there's a COVID pandemic going on right now, and so that has to be taken into account. But at some point, these these bans actually end up becoming counterproductive to the extent that people want to come to actually open businesses here and invest in the United States, and even those individuals are being kept out, then the question becomes, what what is the purpose of that ban? If you can actually show that the person doesn't have coronavirus, why are you keeping them out at this point? The DACA case is still pending at the Supreme Court. There's been no decision, despite the fact that it is one of the earliest cases that was argued this term. Should we read anything into the fact that the DACA decision has not been announced? Yes, I certainly have a a fear that the reason that the decision is taking so long is because the justices who are on the side of maintaining DACA want to keep the decision out for as long as possible because they know that the, the, the program is going to be rescinded. That would be my guess, but obviously... That is still a guess. I don't know this for sure. But I feel as if if the program were going to be maintained, then the decision would have just been issued over the course of the ordinary scope. And now you have individuals saying, don't even issue the decision this term. Move it into the next term. You're seeing some of this advocacy happening now because people are saying the last thing that the United States can, can tolerate right now is yet another sort of uh, highly charged political issue working its way into into the framework of all of these other highly charged political issues we're seeing right now. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.